turn to the book of Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, uh, I want to, it's just a joy, I think, this morning to talk about this passage of Scripture. Uh, I think all of Scripture is a joy to talk about, but the last two weeks were kind of tough, and I had people that chatted with me and and indicated that they were kind of tough and hoped that this Sunday there would be some good news, and there is some good news this Sunday. I think there's good news every Sunday. Sometimes it's just harder to find. Um, But uh, the Apostle Paul just gives us this amazing contrast to what we looked at last week about how our situation was so desperate as as those who are outside of Christ and those who are estranged from God. And this week we get to see what God has done in order to bring us into a relationship with Him. And unless we have a, a proper understanding of how dire and desperate our situation was, we can't really have a, an appreciation for the magnificent and the, the magnificence and the magnitude of the solution that God has undertaken in order to bring us into his family and to make us his children. And as I think about some of these things that we'll talk about this morning, uh, I, I wish that we would get them um, in our hearts and minds more often and reflect on them because it just drives our appreciation for God through the roof. Uh, for what he has done for us. Um, so I'm going to read just verses 4 to 7. This is part of one long sentence in, in Greek, but it's a few sentences here in our English translation. Um, but verses 4 to 7 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Father, thanks for a couple moments now in your word. And uh, I pray that you would help us see the magnitude of of your grace and your mercy, what it means in our lives, and, and how we ought to be so grateful for it. I pray that uh, as we come to this word, it is the living word of God. These are not just words on a page, but they are words that can affect a life change in us. And so, Father, I pray that even this morning you will change our lives for your good and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The first thing that we we see as we come to a a passage like this is this amazing uh, um, um, reminder to us about the source of our new life, the source of of how we go from deadness to, to uh, aliveness in God. And it comes through this reality of, of but God. And you notice that in verse 4, that, that, that Paul is now drawing this contrast to us. The last two weeks we've been talking about how dire our situation was. How we were those that were spiritually dead. And in fact, we use the phrase, um, 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 the living dead. Because that while we still are animated and we, while we still have physical life, there is no spiritual life in us. And he says that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We followed the course of this world. We were captive to Satan and his influence in our lives. We were those that did the will of the flesh. And we were sons of disobedience. And the worst of that all was, he says, and we were by nature children of wrath. That's such a, a, a difficult description of, of humankind, but it's a true description. And so when we hear these words, but God, we are hit with this contrast that should begin to just blow our mind. And we find this woven through Scripture in so many places. And I, I just maybe will we'll bring one illustration to you. Um, in the book of Acts, we, we, in chapter 7, 
there's a speech from a man named Stephen as he's, um, uh, he's just moments away from death and he's um, telling people about why they should turn to Jesus. And one of the things that he recounts to them is, uh, the, is their history and he specifically focuses on one individual, a man named Joseph. And he says this, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. In other words, Joseph was in big trouble. He was abandoned by his family. He was sold into slavery. He was sent down into Egypt. He was sent away from his family. And this was a real bad situation. But Philip, uh, or Stephen uses these two words there. He says, but God. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. In other words, Joseph was in big trouble. But were it not for God, he would continue to be in trouble. But God intervened in his life. And uh, I've given you some examples, and we won't turn to them this morning, in Psalm, Psalm 41, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, of more instances of, of presentations of our dire situation, but God. And so that's what Paul is illustrating here, is that our situation was bleak. We were in big trouble, but God intervened on our behalf. What is important to me is to understand why did God do that? Why has God loved us? Why has God intervened in our life? Why has God taken us from our dire situation and our desperate situation and given us hope and given us life? And that's what we find in this passage. He has done something with us together with Christ. That God has has done something amazing in and through us, through the work of Jesus Christ. And he, the first thing that he says there that God has done for us, he says he has made us alive together with Christ. There's a little word or a little prefix that's used in these next three phrases that's attached to each of the verbs that reminds us that everything that God does for us is through Christ. And I want to say this off the top, that, that sometimes we, we, we get away from the, the centrality of Jesus Christ. And I know that there are a lot of completing religions and I know that there are a lot of um, people who are saying there's many ways to find a relationship with God. There's many roads that lead to God and that you don't really need to go through Christ that you can go through Buddha or you can go through yourself or you can go through Muhammad but that all these ways eventually lead to the same God. That's not what the scripture teaches. You won't find that anywhere in scripture. The scripture teaches that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. The only way that we enter into a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. And so he lists these things of what God has done for us in Christ. The first things he tells us is that he has made us alive together with Christ. This is again this illustration that we were not simply uh, just dysfunctional. We weren't only spiritually sick. He says we were dead. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. There was no ability for us to respond to God. Dead dead people don't react. And so he says the first thing that he did is he gave us life. That just as he breathed into Adam when he created him and, and animated his body and gave him life, so he takes those who are dead in their sins and trespasses and he breathes into them new life through the person of the Holy Spirit and through the work of Christ and we become alive. This is an amazing thing that God has done for us. He has made us alive. And there's a, there's a story in the Bible about a man named Lazarus. Lazarus uh, was an individual who was a good friend of Jesus, and, and he died. And uh, before he was dead, uh, his, 
uh, his, his sister sent and said to Jesus, you need to come quickly because Lazarus is, 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 is sick and he wants to see you before he dies. And the story tells us how Jesus um, delayed. And in fact, he delayed for a number of days and eventually he made his way uh, to Bethany where Lazarus was and he was greeted with Mary's sisters and this, this whole group of people who were already mourning the death of Lazarus. And Lazarus had been dead for four days. And he was so dead, in fact, that... Uh, so dead. It was. He, he, was, he was so dead that as Jesus came to, 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 the, to the grave and he was going to get the ro- stone rolled back, they said, no, no, don't do that because he stinks. Because the, the decay had already set in to Lazarus' body. And so they were concerned that Jesus wanted to roll the stone away from the tomb. And so Lazarus was dead. But if you know the story in in, in the Gospel of John, you find that they do roll the stone away. And Jesus stands outside the grave and he simply says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus got up and he waddled out of the grave. And he waddled because he was wrapped in grave clothes. And the next thing that Jesus said is he says, unwrap him. And so these people around him were, were taking all these grave clothes off of him. And, and, and then a little bit later, we find that Jesus is having dinner with him. And so th- this is this amazing illustration of what Jesus does for us spiritually. That just as people who are dead physically have no response to anything or anyone, except when the word of Jesus is spoken to them, they come alive. So spiritually, we are dead. But when Jesus says to us, come out or come forth, life is breathed into our bodies. And, and when, when we think about um, Lazarus having those grave clothes unwrapped from him, that's a, another way of saying that Jesus then begins to take away all our sins and all our transgressions and all those things that have made us be hostile towards God and that have created our deadness. And so Lazarus is this illustration of what Jesus does for us spiritually. He gives us new life. But God doesn't stop there. That would have been enough. But then he says that he also raised us up with him. And what what he's saying, and that's a past tense verb, and what Paul is saying is that not only have we been given new life, but we have been raised up with Christ. We have defeated the power of death. We have defeated the power of sin. The implications of this are that we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer. We don't have to be controlled by addictions. We don't have to be controlled by the power of sin over our life, by greed or by envy or by lust or by pride or by idolatry because that power is broken because we have been raised up with Christ. In another place, Paul says that we we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so what Paul is telling these Ephesian Christians, he's telling God has done something amazing for you. He says not only has he given you life and made you alive, but he's raised you up with Christ and you now have have the life of Christ coursing through your bodies and you can walk differently now. You can talk differently now. You can think differently now. You are not controlled by those addictions and by that, that impulse towards sin. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and he has seated us with him. And so what he's saying is that there's, there's something amazing that has taken place. And again, it's this past tense. He says that, that, that as Christ was brought up and exalted to the Father and accepted by God, so you now are accepted by God. 
that you are seated in the heavenlies with God. You are seated with Christ in, in, in heaven. And we have a hard time wrapping our heads around this because we live in such a physical realm. But remember, when we first started the book of Ephesians, uh, we, we looked at the fact that Paul wrote it and he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So he reminded them, you live in a real spot. You live in a geographical place on the earth. But then he also said to them, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, we also live in Christ. There's a spiritual reality to our lives. And so what he's saying is God has done this amazing thing for us spiritually. We were dead. We had no response to God. We were, we were, we were unresponsive to him. He made us alive. He, he has forced or he has called new life to course through our bodies and he has made us acceptable to God. He has raised us up with Christ and seated us with the Father in heaven. When we begin to think about these things, loved ones, we begin to see then that salvation is entirely connected with Christ. There is no other way to God. There is no other way to find salvation. The only way by which we are saved and enter into a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. We have to believe in Christ. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so this is what God has done for us. He has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We were dead. But he made us alive. He raised us up. And he seated us with Christ. But I think what what staggers me even more is not the fact that God has done that, but why has God done that for us? Have you ever thought about that? Why has God done what he has done for you? What, what, what motivated him to do that? How do you explain him giving life to you who are dead? How do you explain him loving, loving us who were rebels against him? Loving us who, who, who didn't want anything to do with him? How do we explain that? Often we look inside of ourselves. And we say, well, he, he did that because I had lots of money to give to the church. There is no amount of money that you can give that will give you new life. Some of us say, well, well it's because I'm a pretty good person. You know, I might not be per- perfect, but you ought to see my neighbor. They're a really bad person. And so God has done that for me because he looks at me and he says, there's some good stuff there. The Bible says there is no good in any of us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, some say, well, it's because of my mom and dad or my grandpa and grandma. They were really, really good people, and God really loved them, and they did a lot for God, and so so God has done that for me because I'm connected with them. The Scripture says that we do not ever get into a relationship with God on the shirt tails of our parents or our brothers or sisters or our grandparents. So we, in other words, we look inside and we say, well, there must be something in me that caused God to love me and do that for me. The reality of the Bible is that that's not the case. And so we have to look elsewhere then for why God would do that for us. And we begin to see that in a few places. One, we see that in the character of God. God who is rich in mercy, Paul says. It's only when we grasp how desperate our situation and understand what mercy is that we begin to see the magnitude of what God has done for us. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is receiving what you don't deserve. That's the definition, that's the simple definition of mercy. It's to receive what you don't deserve. And so what Paul is saying is God is rich in mercy. He does for us something that we don't deserve. 
Um, God is said to be merciful, not just merciful, he's said to be rich in mercy. There is tons to go around. Um, we think of, of people like, um, uh, 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 well, the, the word used to describe rich is, is extremely rich. And so we think materially of somebody like Warren Buffett or of, um, or of uh, Bill Gates, and we think they are rich. And we, we think in our head, well, I, you know, I, I understand what billions and billions of dollars is, but I can't fathom it. Um, well, God, in the spiritual sense, is rich towards us in a way that makes Warren Buffett and Bill Gates paupers. That he is rich in mercy. That even though we can't comprehend the depth and the degree and the extent of his mercy, that doesn't negate the fact that he is still merciful and he has got tons of mercy to show to us. And so that's what Paul says, the first motive behind God's bringing us to new life is because he's just merciful. He's rich in mercy. And another place in the Bible, one of the writers talks about the coming of Jesus and he says there that God's mercy is tender. I, I, I appreciate that description of, of mercy. Do you know that sometimes mercy can be harsh? Sometimes mercy can be stingy. Sometimes mercy can be the result of lazy justice or frustrated justice. You know, it might be, just get out of here. I don't have time to deal with you. You know, we'll just put that aside. Just, just leave me, you know. And, and, and that's a, a form of mercy, but it's, it's rough mercy. Where with tender mercy, you get this, this picture of God who wants to be merciful to us. God who, who thinks about the mercy that he is contributing to us. And we see all throughout the Bible how often men and women appeal to the mercy of God. David, when he had sinned horribly, said, God, be merciful to me. Blot out my transgressions. Make me white as snow. We see another description of, of, of two men that are, are at the temple. And one of them is a Pharisee. And he's standing up and he's, he's loud and proud. And he's saying, God, you're lucky to have me. Thank you that I'm not like publicans and sinners. And thank you that I'm not like that man over there. And I give lots of my money to you and, and all this kind of stuff. And then you have another picture of a man in a corner who can barely lift up his head and he's beating his breast and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Throughout the Bible, we read that men and women are recognizing the fact that God does for them what they don't deserve. And so we see that God is rich in mercy. The second thing that we see is the motive of God. He's great in love. God so loved the world that he gave. That's the demonstration of the greatness of God's love that he gave of himself for us. And what staggers me is that God gave even when I didn't care about it, didn't want, about, want anything to do with it because he says in Romans 5.8 that he demonstrated his love towards me while I was yet his enemy. That shows you the magnitude or the greatness of God's love. That he so loved us that he gave of himself. Thirdly, we see something of the context of his mercy and love, which, which we've already talked about, where we were dead in our sins. That's the context in which God's mercy is, is made known. That's the context in which the love of God shines. There is no such thing as an innocent dead person. That we are spiritually dead because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what Paul has been talking about in those first three verses is justice. And almost every one of us here has an innate sense of justice. And it's come to my, you know, I, this was illustrated for me in the last couple of weeks when, if you've been following the talk shows, uh, they've been talking about Carla Homolka and, and her, um, 
her attempt to apply for a pardon and, and just the, the outrage that has gone out across Canada that this is so unjust that, that there is no justice in that and, and how the members of parliament were supremely motivated to pass a bill in order that she couldn't apply for, for, for a pardon. And, and what offended so many of us was our sense of justice. The sense that, that, that she didn't, wasn't getting what, what she deserved or that she didn't deserve that sense of mercy. But what has, what has sort of you know, gone through my head a little bit as I thought about this is, is sometimes we think that mercy is a right. We think that justice is, is something that everyone else deserves, but I deserve mercy. And sometimes I think we think that, 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 that grace is something that we can expect. And so we, we want other people to receive justice, but for ourselves we want to have mercy. And so in this passage we're seeing justice and grace and mercy all described. Let me try and help you understand the difference between those. Justice means that I get what I deserve. That's what the definition of justice. Um, there was a, a time ago that I was driving with Kathy, and we're going down the road, and, and uh, I happened to look in my rearview mirror, and, and there were these lights going. And I thought, oh, no, like, what did I do? And so we pull into the, the side of the road, and, and uh, I'm, you know, you get all sweaty and nervous because you can't think of what you've done, but you must have done something because he's pulling you over. So Kathy's rifling through the glove box, and she, she pulls out um, our registration, and we both look at it at the same time. We go, oh, no, we hadn't paid our registration. And so the officer comes up, and he taps on the window, and I had already rolled it down out of courtesy, so he didn't need to tap. But um, he says, you know why I pulled you over? And I said, yep, I just kind of figured out that we don't have registration. And he says, you know, that's a $632 fine. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of money. Justice would have been that I got a ticket for that. I had broken the law. But mercy means that I get what I don't deserve. And he says to me, do you know I pulled you over? And as I said, I told you. But he says, you know, it's near the end of the shift, and I don't really want to write you up a ticket. Um, uh, And uh, at that point, he could have stopped and said, I'll get a tow truck and uh, get your car home, and that would have been mercy enough. No ticket, but just get a tow truck and get your car off the road and go home. But it didn't stop there. So justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is getting what I don't deserve. Grace is getting, uh, is I get what I don't deserve. Did I, make, did I mix that up? <laughs> justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is getting what I don't deserve. Grace is getting more than I deserve. That's better. And so... He says to me, he says, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to pull down here off the road. There's an empty lot here. You pull your car down off the load, uh, road. There's an insurance place up the road. You go up there and get your insurance, and here's $632 to get it. No, he didn't give me the 632 <laughs> That would have been rich in mercy. Um, but, but, but he did say, he did do that. And so I was able to run up to the, to the place and get my insurance and come back and put it on, 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 on the car. So that is a, sort of an illustration of what Paul is talking about here. We deserved justice. We were children of disobedience. We were by nature um, under wrath. God gave us mercy. He did for us um, more than he did for us what we didn't deserve. And then he's going to tell us about grace where God goes beyond that and gives to us what we don't deserve. 
Somebody told me this morning going out about a, a rich lady who wanted to have a portrait done so that she could um, leave it for her family. And uh, so she commissioned a young man to come over and, and do the portrait. And uh, she said to him, uh, you know, son, I trust that uh, you can do justice to me. And uh, as he, she was saying this, the, the boy was realizing that, well, she might have been rich materially, but she hadn't been given much riches um, in, the, in the good looks side of things. And so he says, ma'am, what you need is mercy, not justice. <laughs> and, uh, so it, it sort of helps us understand the, the difference between mercy and, and justice. Um, but nonetheless, these are these three concepts that are found in this passage of Scripture. And, and then he goes to this fourth one, uh, or this, this next thing of what God has done for us. And he says, by grace you have been saved. That's a hint of the things to come. You see, God not only doesn't give us justice, what we deserve. God doesn't only give us mercy, do for us what we don't deserve, or not do for us what we deserve. But God is gracious to us and goes beyond, above and beyond and does for us what we don't deserve. By grace you have been saved through faith. You see, it's throwing this all back at God. It's all of God, but God, but God, but God. Grace, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. I was in trouble, but God. I was dead, but God made me alive. I was following the course of this world, but God was rich in mercy and raised me up with Christ and seated me with Christ. You see, the magnitude and the magnificence of our salvation is, is illustrated in this passage. And then, what's more, he says, so that in the coming ages, he might show to us. Well, he might show to us what? Look at verse 7. This is astounding to me. He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See what Paul is saying? You see, he seems to be saying that the sum purpose of God in doing this for us is in order to demonstrate to us and show us his kindness. We don't talk about the kindness of God enough. Do you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you know that the moment we were conceived, we, we, God could have justly allowed us to die? Do you know, certainly, that the first moment we sinned and broke God's law, he could have said, that's it? But God is not only a God of justice, he's a God of mercy. And not only is he a God of mercy, but he's kind. And it's his kindness, it's his gentleness, it's his graciousness that leads us to repentance. In another passage of Scripture, God is shocked by the people's rejection of him because he says, I have led them with cords of kindness. Can you imagine that? Being wrapped around with, with only the kindness of God and every time we stray, a cord pulls us back and every time we stray this way, a cord pulls us back and, and when we're just at the cliff of danger, a cord of kindness pulls us back and God is astounded that is, in all of his kindness, his people still turn and walk the other way. But the sort of sum of all that Paul is saying is that this demonstrates God's kindness towards you. And have you ever considered the incarnation of Jesus Christ? The incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's God becoming man and living among us. And, and, and Christ then living among us, dying among us, and then being raised from the dead. Have you ever considered that that is an illustration of God's kindness? That's what Paul says in Titus that 
that when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, His love for mankind, or, or when, God, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. In other words, in Christ Jesus, we have an illustration of the kindness of God. And what blows me away even more is that he says that in the coming ages, he is going to show us his kindness. Now think about that, because back in verse two, um, chapter 2, verse 1, he says that in this present age in which you once walked. So this present world is an age. Before this world was a previous age, before creation. After this world, there's a new age, the new heaven and earth. So there's plural. In this one age, God has showed us his kindness in Christ. What is he going to do in the next age to magnify his kindness? What is he going to do in the next age? Throughout eternity, God is going to continue to show us his kindness. That, for me, is absolutely staggering. As we come to think about this, I think, where, why is this part of God not talked about more often? We often hear people rail against the anger of God or the wrath of God or the jealousy of God or the judgment of God. And those are very real things. And out of context, I understand why people could, could be offended by them. But why don't we also talk about the richness of God's mercy? Why don't we also talk about the greatness of God's love? Why don't we also talk about the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness and about the great kindness of God? Why don't we balance the picture of God out? And as we come to think of this as, as fathers and, and, and sort of bring it to a little bit of an application for fathers, here is your model, men. This is your model of what it means to be a father in the home. It begins with this phrase, but God. And you, you think about what we've just talked about in terms of parenting, how you treat your wife, how you treat your children. Think about the balance. Yes, there needs to be justice in the home, but there needs to be mercy and grace and kindness as well. And notice how, how that God, he, he, the, the worst of all possible situations, doesn't send him running. That's when God steps up to the plate. And that's when we read, but God. And so when your kids are at their worst, then we say, but dad. And dad steps into the picture. And then we think about this and it says that God is rich in mercy. Being a dad is not just about justice. It's not just about rules. It's not just about right and wrong. It's not just about do what I say. It's about being rich in mercy. It's about sometimes doing for your kids things that they don't deserve. It's sometimes sucking up the price of their disobedience yourself and paying the bill for a broken window or, or, or whatever it else might be and saying and just being rich in mercy and saying, you know, I've covered that son. I've covered that daughter. And what, about, what about being great in love? Again, it's not just about justice, but it's about this, this love, this sacrificial love, this undeserved love, this demonstrated love to our kill, children when, when, when their whole being and their whole actions don't deserve it. And so in God, we see this great love even when we don't deserve it. And what about abounding in grace? What about those times when your kids... Just the, the, you know, they, they just need you to, to even go beyond what justice demands, to go beyond mercy, what mercy demands, and to give them even what they don't deserve. And you don't have to make a big show of it, but just in your actions, in your words, and in your kindness towards them, you just go above and beyond even what they deserve in their lives. What about kindness? 
Oh, men, we need to be kinder in our homes, don't we? We need to show our kindness to our spouses and show our kindness to our kids to demonstrate kindness towards them. This is what God our Father is like. We're to emulate God and to take on, on His characteristics onto ourselves. May God help us to be fathers that are rich in mercy. Fathers that have great love. Fathers that abound in grace. And fathers that overflow looking for opportunities to show kindness to our children.